I'm Susan Sontag, uh, and it's my privilege to open this meeting uh, for Joyce Shoot to express our, our feelings about uh, Joyce Shoot. It's Penn's privilege among uh, her many friends and associations of friends to have the uh, honor of sponsoring uh, this, this uh, meeting uh, in memory of Joy Shute. I'm a very new president of Penn. Uh, I, w I became officially uh, president in, in June and have been working at it part-time through the summer and, and really uh, only now, in the uh, in these early fall months, have uh, taken up more uh, active and official duties. Though for some time, since I became active in Penn, uh, close to a decade now, I've been aware of Joy and of the very special role that she had at Penn and the very, very special place that she occupied in the affections of those people who are most active in Penn and the importance that she had uh, in the coming to judgment and consensus and the decisions that were made uh, about Penn. Uh, there, there was no one like Joy and no one who really had her role in our organization. Martin Tucker, I think, uh, has called her uh, our spiritual uh, historian. And it was not just because she had the history of Penn, uh, its, its precedence, its spirit uh, in her head, and we could draw on that, uh, but because of a particular passionate relationship that she had to this organization. In other words, it wasn't just a question of longevity, of being around for a long time. We do have other senior members whom we value very much, uh, but I think it's not an exaggeration to say that all of us, and I as a, a, a new person of, um, uh, in, in this office, felt that Joy was special, and I suspect would have said uh, before her death about her the things that we're going to say tonight. It's not a question of exaggeration. It's not a question of sentimentality. Um, I've heard Karen Kennerly, the executive director, and many other people at Penn say, well, I think so. Uh, I'm going to call Joy. Uh, I'd like to see what she thinks about this. We, we depended upon her. Uh, she mattered for us beyond uh, her official role, which was already an important one in the Writers' Fund and other, and other activities which she managed with great intelligence and discretion. And her example and her good judgment will continue to be with us. I'd like to read a, a statement by someone who, among the many people who love Joy, who can't be with us tonight, uh, and it's by Gregory Rabassa, and it was enclosed in the following uh, letter, which was addressed to Karen Kennerly. And the letter says, unfortunately, dear Karen, unfortunately, I must attend an ATA acronyms, but anyway, unfortunately, I must attend an ATA meeting in Albuquerque, where I am to speak and shall perforce miss the memorial service for joy. When I first saw the word of her going and our loss, I put down the words above as my feelings. Perhaps they can serve in some way as we mourn her going, love, Greg. These, these are words, in other words, that weren't written just for this occasion, but were written uh, immediately after Gregory Rabassa heard the news. Joy shoot. If ever the word was made flesh, it was with joy. What a joy she was, how warm she was, 
and there are so many of us who know this. Her joy, her name, was in her gift for others, and there too is her everlasting gift to herself. Joy Shute is the everlasting mother of us all, and I wish she could be here to know at final last how much so many of us loved her. She did so much as an example to make mankind a lovable species. Joy to us all for having known her. Amen. I'm Karen Kennerly. When I first came to work at Penn nearly 10 years ago, not yet as director, I didn't know why I was there, but Joy did. Of course, she didn't tell me then, because Joy had the gift, rare even among the wise, of not stating all she knew and understood until the necessary moment. I don't mean necessary in the modern sense where necessity and crisis most often converge, but in the classical sense of exquisite and easeful timing. Joy was, for me, for all of us, my archetypal guide in matters of spirit and of practicality. She was always there somehow, extraordinarily, before you were really lost, when you first started looking around. So often in the past 10 years, I would think, now what? And would call joy. Or just as often, she would call me and begin with, what do you think about? Uncannily anticipating an issue I was just starting to sort out. When I worried about a possible mistake, I always talked to Joy, and she invariably had one of two responses. Either, there was nothing wrong with that, honey, nothing at all. In fact, and she would continue to give from her vast and swift generosity reasons why my action was right. Or, when I really did make a mistake, she would laugh in a way that made me melt with the relief of knowing my error was human and that she would help mend it. Joy taught me pen. She taught me that it is an idea as fierce as it is all-embracing, that it is a body which must be forever flexible and forever constant, that the singularity of its history determines the importance of its future. Not an easy premise, but neither was it difficult because Joy was always there, right there, to help. Everyone on staff had his or her distinct relationship with Joy, no matter how many of us there were. And we all learned, singly and together, the subtlest lesson of all, that work and life is most interestingly and deeply perceived when focus, not ego, is all. I had two teachers in my life. One was a no master in Japan, and the other was Joy Shute. And the staff asked me to say for all of them that they miss her deeply and that she was an active part of their everyday life. I'm Elizabeth Roach. Joy Chute was my aunt, a second mother to me, a role model, and most importantly, my friend. 
The words that come to my mind when I think of her now are love, joy, fun, comfort, and understanding. Also the word respect. She had respect for every other person, even for small children. It wasn't until I was about eight or nine years old that I realized that not every other little kid had a grandmother and two aunts who lived together. I thought that everyone had that, but I learned later that other people had cousins that they played with. And for whatever I may have lacked by not having cousins to play with, I had especially my aunts, my Aunt Joy, who was a very magical person for a little girl. My earliest memory of her was when I was three, and she made me feel included and important when my new baby brother came home from the hospital. After we moved from New York City to Long Island, my family came on Friday nights to dinner at my grandmother's house. We were always there on Friday nights. We were always there on birthdays, special occasions, and holidays. My parents were very sensible. They allowed my brother and I to have special visits to my grandmother's apartment where we didn't have to go together, and that meant we didn't have to share. We could have our aunt's and our grandmother's attention completely. And I remember so many of those visits. We used, my Aunt Joy and I especially, we used to do things like go to Rumpelmeyer's for ice cream. We used to have picnics in Central Park. We went to the museums and the cloisters. Aunt Joy in particular devoted herself to me during those years, even though she had a lot of other commitments and was writing. She taught me how to cook and how to bake. And I remember now, especially today, now that this is sponsored by Penn, that when I was very young, just a bare teenager of 14 or 15, she and my Aunt Marchette used to take me to Penn cocktail parties, and I felt terribly grown up. She was always willing to help me. She gave me advice about friends and people. She found special books when I needed them for social studies classes. She helped me with my homework assignments, and she came to all my graduations. After I was married, my Aunt Joy made a special effort to come to all the places that we were living, and she always gave us a warm welcome whenever we came to New York. She and my husband developed a very close relationship that lasted throughout their lives. I went to Barnard for two of the years that my aunt was teaching there, and on Tuesdays, I always made a special point of going to her office for lunch. Sometimes we'd sit and just have a sort of picnic in her office, and we'd talk about the events of the day. Sometimes we'd stroll around the Barnard campus, or sometimes we'd walk down the river. When I went to graduate school, she was there still, always. I had an evening class on Monday nights, and I remember taking the subway down and staying the night there. And she was always ready with a cup of tea or some ginger ale and some comfort and advice. And the next morning, we would get on the bus and the subway together and go up to Barnard. One of the things I remember that being the most fun was in January of 1977, when both of us decided independently to go to Carter's, Jimmy Carter's inauguration in Washington. We'd both gotten invitations. At the time, we didn't know that the invitations were sent out to almost everybody who'd worked in the campaign, and that you were supposed to bring the invitations into your local campaign office to get tickets, proper tickets. We didn't know that. We drove down to Baltimore because that was the closest place that we could find somewhere to stay. We stayed in this lovely old place that was going through renovations, but we didn't mind. And it was terribly cold also, but we didn't mind that either. And the next morning, we trekked into Washington. I drove, but I parked way out so that we wouldn't get caught in the mess. And we uh, got to the large crowd that was approaching the Capitol lawn. And um, we noticed at that point that people were showing tickets to the Marine Guards. And there we were in this terrible crowd with no tickets, no way of getting out, and the only way was forward. And my Aunt Joy turned to me and she said, look, uh, when we get up close, we'll move in behind the people in front of us. And when they show their tickets, just keep walking. <laughs> and that's what we did. Well, on the other side, I felt like a thief walking in. <laughs> but she was next to me, so that was all right. Well, um, after that, we kind of looked around, and a guard came up to us, and he said, um, and what kind of tickets do you have? 
And my aunt said very quickly, oh, we have the, you know, um, the, the whatchamacallit tickets. And um, he said, oh, that's fine. Let me help you, ladies. <laughs> so we got a very, very good view of the whole thing. It was really a wonderful occasion. <laughs> very cold, but very wonderful. Um, in 1981, my husband and I went to Western Samoa in the South Pacific. Um, I was training at Columbia to be a cultural anthropologist. And during the two years that I was away, my aunt took care of all of my financial arrangements, including getting money to me. And I'd like to try to explain that. Usually when we think of the establishment, we see a body of rather uh, sophisticated and um, cultivated people who know how to run things well, who know how to manipulate a particular society or enclave in order to keep control of it. And um, that's true for most members of an establishment. Joy, to the contrary, gave one a notion of what an establishment not only could be but should be because she embodied the principles of the organization that she worked for. She believed in them. She uh, personified them. I remember when I first became president of Penn for my various private reasons, which are not worth going into, uh, I began to recognize that I had accepted the presidency of an organization that was truly serious and worthwhile despite my uh, distrust of, of, of the large words which surround our pen efforts because of joy, because her, her absolute, the, the glow of her sincerity made me begin to take pen much more seriously than I ever had before. And since I was indeed the president, and it's better for presidents to believe in what they're doing than not believe in it, I had, uh, you might say, an umbilical debt to her. I also had, parenthetically, a debt to Marchette Shute because of her fine history of Penn. So I had a debt to both sisters. But I would just like to leave with this simple notion that joy, as others before me today have said, was our point of reference. It was amazing how, at meetings, she was the one whose eye you would look for. And unlike other establishment figures who essentially would go thumbs up or down, Joy's eyes were always extraordinarily alive and reflected to you the nuance of your own concern. So that it, um, it can only be said that we, we will, of course, go on, one always does, but Organizationally, we, we know a loss that is rare indeed. Good evening. I'm John Ryan from the Police Athletic League. Uh, Bob Morgenthau very much wanted to be here today. He was a good friend of Joy and knew her for, as I did, for some 27 years. Uh, his duties kept him away and he asked me to say a word or two. Um, Joy Shute, uh, when, when, we, when we think of people passing, we tend to, we try to think of the uniqueness of people and I think Joy was a unique individual to us. Uh, she started with PAL back, uh, she was interviewed by Kitty Kirby on her radio program down at WNYC <clears throat> about a book that Joy, one of the many wonderful books Joy had written, and that got her interested in PAL, and she began working on our libraries. In that work, she was, in my mind, unique in terms of her dedication and hard work. You, you, there was no task that Joy would not undertake. She just said, we'll do it, don't worry about it, and we'll do it, and she did it, usually with no resources from us. Uh, she also was a very current lady, and, and uh, by that I mean she was always like a step ahead of our thinking. Uh, she set up the first uh, black uh, cultural uh, 
history library in, in Brooklyn for us out in Sweeney Center when nobody else was doing that back in the middle, early 60s, actually. Uh, she, she set that up in our Sweeney Center and, and stocked it and everything else. And she was also unique in, in terms of her, and I searched for a word here and I, I, I can't find one, but I think it's her unassumedness. I mean, she, many people in Powell don't even know about Joy Shute. Some of us are lucky enough to know about her because everything she did, she never got much credit for or never was heralded for it, but she just did it for some 27, 28 years. And <clears throat> the last thought I had, and I, I, I always get accused of making a sales pitch, and I certainly don't want to do that, but the work of the PAL serving kids in this city is very important to us all, and it was really important to Joy, and I don't think she would mind. I know how much so many of you in the audience helped her in this work by giving her books and by many of the publishers in this city. She was constantly, I'm sure, to the point of, uh, of, of haranguing you, getting resources for us. I would just make a plea that in her name, if you could, don't stop that, because there are a lot of kids, most of them black or brown or, or whatever, kids from New York who now read today and love literature and love books because of, of Joy Shute. And I, I, don't, I don't know how to say that any stronger, but I, all I would say is on behalf of Bob Morgenthau, all of our board, and, and most importantly the 50,000 kids, and over the years that number probably multiplies many times, I would say thank you to Joy Shute, a very wonderful and, and dear lady who, who worked very hard and, and made PAL, made the idea of a library in PAL a reality. It wasn't there 35 years ago. It is there today, and there's not a center we have that doesn't have some educational programs. Much of that is due to this very wonderful lady. Thank you. My name is Christine Friedlander, and I worked with George Hute on the Penn Writers Fund. It was only a short time after my arrival in the United States in 1947 that I first heard about Joy and Marchette Chute. My father was very concerned about his friend and fellow emigre writer, Franz Schoenberner. Franz Schoenberner had become completely paralyzed as a result of a vicious assault. How could he go on with his life as a writer? But, said my father, there were these two remarkable women who helped in all kinds of practical ways and who made it possible for Franz Schoenberner to stay in his apartment and continue writing. A few years later, my mother rediscovered a pen pal from her high school days, the writer Borghild Dahl. Borghild became a very good friend of the family. We all admired her greatly for her strength and independence. She was completely blind, but she lived on her own and wrote books for young people about her native Minnesota. The Chute girls, as she called them, had found an apartment for her with neighbors whose children she tutored and who looked after her as a member of the family. The Jude girls had helped her to learn to type after she lost her sight. They helped her with her manuscripts and they arranged for the talking books she loved to read. It was only when I started to work at the Penn office in 1974 that I actually met Joy and Marchette Chute. After a very short time, it became my responsibility to handle the Writers' Fund applications. And in no time I felt, and always said so, that I had the best job at Penn because I was working with Joy. Over the years, we must have discussed close to a thousand applications each reflecting a different personality, a different emergency, many quite desperate, homelessness, illness, desertion, alcoholism, drug addiction. There never was a trace of pitying condescension or anything judgmental in Joy's response. Her acceptance and tolerance was as remarkable as was her optimistic and firm conviction 
that the modest sums the Writers' Fund could grant, the expression of acceptance from fellow writers, would help this particular writer to get back on his or her feet. And she usually was right. I have never met anyone whose mind could focus so quickly and clearly on the essential. Joy was happiest if the help could be practical and immediate. Get the typewriter repaired, pay the premium for the car insurance or health insurance, have the telephone reconnected. She had strong feelings about skyrocketing rents that most writers cannot afford, evicting landlords, exorbitant medical bills. She wished, and always said so, that everyone should be entitled to a guaranteed minimum income and to free medical care. But as long as these were not yet realities, she was ready to help and did it promptly, cheerfully, carefully, and thoughtfully. I was always amused when she quoted her mother, who she said had said that duty was a dirty word. Yet I have never known anyone who was so completely responsible, so completely reliable to work with. I miss her daily telephone calls, her humor and her warmth. I suddenly realized that I must have talked with her more than with anyone in my family or my friends. I miss hearing her opinions about the daily news and the state of the world, and I miss her unwavering optimism. And I miss our exchanges about the goings-on with our cats. For comfort, I've tried to imagine how she must have coped with loss and grief that she must have known too. I think that she would have said that there was comfort in a loving memory. And she would never have doubted that others would not come forward to carry on where she had to leave off. My name is Gay Talese, and it was my privilege to serve with others of Penn on the Writers' Committee that was so close to Joy Shute's heart and made it part of our lives and our sense of concern. She gave us, she gave me, and she gave all of those that I served with for those three years, Bill Cole and Faith Sale and of course, Christine and others at times. She gave us the sense of the other life of the writer, that the writer whose luck had run out, who had no sense of grandeur, no hope of success. And the wisdom of that writer was really limited to writing to pen, and if lucky, to come in contact with Joy Shute. And on many of those afternoons at the old Penn office downtown, the six or seven of us on her committee would hear Joy read these letters from these writers who were not writing because they were not able to write, because they were too ill to write, because they had no hope that they could write at times. And in the donations that she would have the authority to give, <clears throat> she would give some hope to these writers, but I think she gave much more to people like myself who were on that committee. I think she gave us a sense of the largeness of the spirit that was hers and the sense of hope that she herself represented. And even more to me as a member of the board, I would frequently be in meetings as a member of the board where I thought the members, <clears throat> given that the freedom, uh, uh, the First Amendment is, is absolute in our minds. I think at times our meetings went to the level of polemicism and backbiting qualities and um, prejudicial views that, that was excessive. We have all, those of us who are on the board, we all remember meetings that we wish we hadn't attended. And, but 
on almost all occasions, there would be Joy Shute with her hand in the air, waiting to be recognized by the president. It might have been President Rukheiser or Mailer or Sontag or Gilman or Malamud. And this woman with that hand in the air, with that kind of timidity about her, would finally be recognized and would say something that brought all of the factionalism of the moment. All of these people of the left or the right or the basket of crabs that writers can often be, she seemed with this, with this feminine wisdom of hers, as Norman made reference to the establishment, she was not a woman of the left, she was not a woman of the right. She, she kind of rose above that without being an elitist. And she had a way of bringing us together, which I thought wasn't, wasn't very possible at certain times. And she brought us together and she made all of us, she brought out the best in us. She brought out the best of us in an organization and I think she prepared us as we are now, prepared us to go on without her. And we are prepared and we will go on without her because she made us equal to the task and I'm very grateful to have been one of the many people who knew her and will always remember her with great respect. Thank you. I'm Ellen Soreau. I met Joy at Barnard College in 1964 when she first taught the course in short story writing that she would have taught this year for the 23rd time. I had not wanted to study fiction. I wanted to write poetry. But since there were no spaces in the poetry class, there I was, stuck. Just before class, I went to see the teacher to find out what, if anything, might be done to rectify this disaster. Joy offered solutions I later realized were characteristic. If I wanted to study writing, and if there were no spaces in the poetry course, then why not take the course I was in? Clear-headed, she looked at the fundamental problem and found what to do. Equally characteristically, acknowledging my interest in poetry, she offered to read and comment on my poems while I did the work she required. A bargain was struck, of which I had the better part. Joy's instinct for teaching was the sort that cannot be learned nor taught. Her comments on one's work were just, offered only to help one extract what one wanted to say. She probably knew Conrad's reply to a friend who, returning a manuscript, had sent an oppressively attentive reading, that one does not want criticism, just praise and she had a wonderful capacity to combine the two. As few writing teachers may, she went further than technique to address the character of characters, complementing their author by responding to them as if they had achieved actual life. 11 years after being in Joy's class, when I was teaching English A at Barnard, Joy and I shared an office. Tuesday, as many people have said, Tuesday was her day there, as well as one of mine. But since you all knew Joy, you will understand that there was no conflict. Each week, we left each other notes, and the desk was host to a zoo, her very particular zoo of owls scornful of duplicitous cats and cats eternally protesting their innocence. After getting a new haircut, I would be greeted by an owl on blue Barnard memo paper. The haircut is fine. Do you trim feathers too? Throughout the academic year, a gold beacon stayed on Joy's desk, an apothecary jar filled with lemon Napoleons, magically in endless supply and available to all who entered the office, Joy's students or mine, and certainly Joy's colleagues in the department who appeared in centripetal traffic every Tuesday, though not for lemon candy. She was a helpful advisor about teaching. 
when once I had a student whose response to any assignment or suggestion resembled Lear's fivefold no, I asked Joy's advice. Honey her up, she told me. Honey her up. The prospect seemed distasteful, and worse, I could not imagine it would succeed. But I tried it, the student glowed, and all negatives ceased. I even got to like the student immensely, an outcome Joy had, of course, anticipated. Her knack was always to count on the best in other people, a best that often no one but she believed present. The adventure was circular, for she credited the possibility of a spiritual excellence which, addressed, she found and announced had always been there. Knowing Joy meant going to tea at the Chutes, at Joy and Marchette's. Tea was an oasis with actual tea. Jackson's jasmine became one of my favorites, and Joy's homemade cookies. Or in summer, either iced tea or lemonade and Joy's homemade cookies. It might even mean a stroll to Peppermint Park for ice cream cones. Only once did I go to tea when Joy was not at home, and that was at her suggestion. For an exercise for English A, I had destroyed a paragraph from Marchette's Ben Johnson of Westminster, counting on its perfect architecture and sentences to teach students that the original, if well wrought, could be retrieved from the puzzle presented them. When I showed Joy what I was trying to do, she said Marchette would be interested to see it. So we had tea by ourselves to the accompaniment of Pawtucket's observations perhaps the only occasion on which food and beverage have been offered to someone for undoing a writer's hard work. I am not sure what Joy's actual height may have been, but leaving their home after tea, I always felt she and Marchette were 12 feet tall, and having been with them, I myself was a little taller. There are two things I didn't include in here that I'd like to mention. One is about Penn and a correspondence, basically, before I ever met Christine. When I taught at Barnard, I was in financial straits at a certain point, and Joy kept coming to my office, the one I was in that semester, and saying, apply to Penn for a writer's grant. And I kept saying, no, 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 other people need that, not me. She kept coming back and saying, apply to Penn for a writer's grant. And I kept saying, no, no, no. She grew very impatient. She came to the office one day with the application form, and she said, fill this out. The meeting is this afternoon. I am chairing it. <laughs> the other thing was something I learned at their home for tea. Um, the writer Andrzej is was one of those writers um, who Mr. Talese mentioned, um, who got to a point where she feared she could never write again and yet she had a story to tell. I'm not exactly sure of my facts, so I think this is true. She called Marchette and Joy. She asked for help. And in a very practical way, help was given. If she had a story to tell, but it was not a story she was confident she could write, why not use a tape recorder? And Joy and Marchette got her a tape recorder, and some years afterwards, this story was published, more than some, I mean, earlier than that, but Owing to the efforts of Joy and Marchette, Andrzej Jerzyszka's work came back into print, and it is still in print, and that's an enormous debt. Knowing Joy meant meeting her niece, Elizabeth Roach, who was a senior at Barnard the year I shared Joy's office. Although I had never guessed it when Joy was my teacher, by this time I knew that Joy had never been to college. Her family had helped found the University of Minnesota, which both her older sisters had attended, but the depression, which required that she work in her father's real estate office, prevented her from continuing formal education. When Elizabeth was to be graduated, her aunt was to march in the academic procession, but without the signs of any degree. Joy's solution was quintessentially chute. Appropriately robed, she wore, instead of the academic cap and tassel, a sunbonnet. Through Elizabeth, my friendship with Joy's, with Joy's family was extended to Elizabeth's husband, Bill, who died last May, and Joy and Marchette's sister, Mary, Elizabeth's mother. Three and a half years ago, when Elizabeth and Bill's daughter, Mary, was born, I became one of her godmothers. As teacher, as colleague, 
as friend, Joy inspired and allowed others to grow. Her gift for unpossessive nurturing was evident in her home, in her care for animals, and her ability to get anything, absolutely anything, to flourish. At one moment, her green thumb struck Marchette with mock, mock terror. That was when Joy cultivated a small Douglas fir, which under her care and in the sun falling on all her plants lined up next to her desk, indeed sprouted. On an afternoon when I had come to tea, Marchette drew my attention to this particular pot and also to the ceiling above it. Joy's kindness was direct, its form sometimes unconventional. A few years ago, I and my cat went into separate hospitals on an emergency basis on the same day. Joy knew I had enough visitors, so she visited my cat. And soon after, photographs of a fairly miserable-looking creature arrived at my hospital bed with a brief note. Guess who? Guess where? Joy's last published novel, The Good Woman, startled me. One knows that writers will imagine beyond what they live, yet her portrayal of Assedia in that book was so distinctly different from anything I associated with her that I was astonished. The features of spiritual apathy, of emotional oppression and exhaustion, seemed contrary to Joy's whole being, certainly her public being. Perhaps more than her other work, this book moved me very deeply. She saw life as a journey, an essentially spiritual journey, and an active one. In her life, she demonstrated the energy of goodness serving the activity of love in her art and her acts. At the time of her death, she had thought out another novel, had made a multitude of notes for it, and was about to start writing it. I regret she did not stay to do it. I joined Penn Club in about 1966, uh, thinking to take part in uh, literary politics and uh, resist uh, censorship, and so felt perhaps radical. Uh, she greeted me the first time uh, I was there. Allen Ginsberg, you're interested in William Blake. <laughs> Uh, and so, on the basis of uh, mutual interest in that visionary poet and his songs of innocence and experience, we had a, 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 a nice rapport that lasted many years, and she took a kind of maternal interest in my development of uh, music for those songs. So, therefore, I'd like to sing two uh, of Blake's songs of innocence and of experience, one very brief one just a little bit longer. The fly on death. Little fly, thy summer's play, my thoughtless hand has brushed away. Am not I a fly like thee, or art not thou a man like me? For I dance and drink and sing, till some blind hand shall brush my wing. If thought is life and strength and breath, and the want of thought is death, then am I a happy fly if I live or if I die. And the other for Joy's uh, empathy, especially with the freedom to write, especially with the Writers Fund, <clears throat> on another's sorrow. Can I see another's woe and not be in sorrow too? Can I see another's grief and not seek for kind relief? Can I see a falling tear and not feel my sorrow's share? Can a father see his child weep nor be with sorrow filled? 
Can a mother sit and hear an infant groan, an infant fear? No, no, never can it be, never, never can it be. And can he who smiles on all hear the wren with sorrow small, hear the small bird's griefs and care, hear the woes that infants bear, and not sit beside the nest pouring pity in their breast, and not sit the cradle near weeping tear on infant tear, and not sit both night and day wiping all our tears away no no never can it be never never can it be he doth give his joy to all he becomes an infant small he becomes a man of woe he doth feel the sorrow too think not thou canst sigh a sigh and thy maker is not by think not Thou canst weep a tear, and thy maker is not near. Oh, he gives to us his joy, that our grief he may destroy. Till our grief is fled and gone, he doth sit by us and moan. 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 We hope that you'll all join us for a reception up the stairs. Thank you. <laughs>